The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everyone. Welcome to Squawk Box. These are your headlines. German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz tells CNBC exclusively that he is confident the economy can return to pre-crisis levels by 2021, but that European leaders need to work together. The European Union has a fiscal capacity to act, and this is, I think, the real uh, moment producing a better union. Um, And my view is that this is possibly the so-called Hamiltonian moment of the European Union. President Trump tests negative and hits the campaign trail in Florida, whilst coronavirus chief Anthony Fauci warns the U.S. is not prepared for another spike in cases as the seasons change. We have a baseline of infections now that vary between 40 and 50,000 per day. That's a bad place to be when you're going into the cooler weather of the fall and the colder weather of the winter. Shares in Apple logged their best day since July, pulling the broader tech sector and market higher as investors anticipate the most significant new iPhone launch in years. Disney decides to restructure its business to boost streaming with CEO Bob Chepek telling CNBC he welcomes input from activist investor Dan Loeb. What we want to do is accelerate our transition to a real direct-to-consumer priority company. Uh, We believe that we've got the opportunity to build upon the success of Disney Plus, which by almost any measure has been far and above anybody's expectations. Plus, Johnson & Johnson forced to pause one of the most advanced vaccine trials in the U.S. after a participant becomes ill, whilst Russia says its Sputnik vaccine could be used widely across the country by the end of this month. German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz has told CNBC exclusively that he expects the German economy to return to its pre-pandemic levels by the start of 2022, but added strong EU solidarity is key to achieving this rebound. If I look to the data, we could be quite confident about the future. Uh, we have an um, increase in, uh, in, in economic growth. We will have a chance that we go back to the situation we had before the crisis in the beginning of 22, possibly a bit earlier. So there is a good development we can see. And this is even so if we look at the labor market. But we have to understand that we all depend on each other. And this is even so for the economy. So we've got plenty of sound coming from Olaf Scholz's exclusive interview with our very own Aneta. And Aneta, already fascinating to hear what Olaf Scholz had to say, but he was talking about solidarity at a broader EU level. How realistic is that, according to Mr. Scholz? Well, it's quite realistic because he is really thinking that this crisis has 
um, made Europe stronger and also more um, more equal in terms of willingness to actually spend money for the weaker nations. We have seen that in that rescue package, which clearly still needs to be completely ratified. But he's very confident that the money is going to flow by the end of this year or early next year. He was telling me in another part of the interview. So essentially, but you also need to know his background. He is a social democrat, so he is traditionally pro-solidarity, pro-sharing um, uh, also uh, burdens in, in Europe. But clearly his message is Europe got his act together and we are actually evolving stronger from that crisis than uh, we were before. But he's also urging the international level, which I think is very interesting because we're heading into that IMF meeting, to actually think about what the crisis has done to weaker nations and there needs to be more solidarity also on that level. And it could be financed by higher taxes for multinationals, for example. Just to remind you, there was this OECD blueprint just yesterday, uh, which proposed a tougher regulation and tougher taxation for multinational, which could raise up to 100 billion US dollar per year. And that could well be used to also finance equalities, um, which evolved from that crisis. But coming back to Germany, um, Olaf Scholz is pretty confident also that Germany actually evolved stronger or at least in the same position from the COVID crisis by the earliest end of next year, early 2022. And that is because the fiscal stimulus is so huge. And he was comparing the crisis now and the instruments which are deployed to the one in the financial crisis, especially the short-term working scheme. This one got extended in Germany but, um, until the end of next year. And he was rebuking any um, criticism that actually Germany could create or the whole world could create zombie companies. But let me bring you back to the point of solidarity, because I think it's quite interesting what you had to say here. Take a listen. I think there is a very solidaric activity in Europe, as you say. And this is really important because it's a difference to the last crisis. And we see that the fact that Europe is acting together is really helping the economy just by announcing it. We are doing it, but it's also helping because anyone understands that Europe is able to fight against the crisis. And this is the right understanding we should have if we look at the global level. Yes, there is uh, international solidarity necessary, and uh, we are very much supporting it. May it be the question of health support which is necessary, it will be important if we discuss about the questions whether vaccines are uh, open to anyone in the world who needs the support. And uh, it's also important if we discuss about support for those countries who have very severe debt problems. You're saying that Europe has shown more solidarity. Some people are also arguing that this crisis has um, actually made um, Europe stronger on the global level because it has shown that it can work together. Would you say that as well? I very much support the idea that Europe uh, is stronger and will go stronger out of the crisis because we acted together. And there is also a very important improvement in the um, European Union, which we can see now. When we have this European debt, which will be necessary for the European Union to support member states that need the support. And 
this will create a difference because having this sovereign debt of the European Union is not just having it, it's also of about paying it back and it's about uh, having European own resources which make it possible that the European Union has a fiscal capacity to act. And this is, I think, the real uh, moment producing a better union. Um, and my view is that this is possibly the so-called Hamiltonian moment of the European Union. And let's talk also about when the money is actually going to be paid out, because clearly there has been a lot of talk and, and of course, also agreement on the rescue package. But when you think the money will actually reach the target? I'm quite optimistic that we will have a chance to solve all the problems this year so that the money will be used right from the beginning of the next year. We know that the usual procedures for taking legal decisions in Europe are taking more time as we have up to the end to the, of this year. But if there is a special situation, you have to be different. And this is what we are working on. Clearly, it's also the German EU presidency, and he seemed to be pretty content on how Germany managed the whole crisis and also that they could push that rescue package now for European speed um, very fast, I would say. Steve, for that, back to you. Uh, uh, absolutely fascinating and I think already illuminating interview, Inessa. We've got Karen joining us uh, for a little bit of a chat now as well. But I've got to say, I think there's an awful lot of wishful thinking in what we've already heard from Herr Schulz. And I understand it from his point of view, from Germany's point of view. But I just think there are a lot of very, very big questions. For a start, one, he talks about this Hamiltonian moment as well. Well, have voters across Europe actually agreed to a Hamiltonian type moment, i.e. creating uh, the United States? of Europe that uh, the US was based on as well, to the fiscal capacity to act as well, talking about uh, actually balancing the books and paying it back. He talks about the debt as well. Well, who is going to be paying for that debt? Let me remind viewers, uh, and Germany knows full well, Inetta, that uh, Italy uh, and Greece and countries of the like haven't actually got down any of their debt from the great financial crisis. In fact, if anything, they've remained stagnantly high and growing as we speak at this moment as well. Uh, and working together, well, everyone can work together when they're being handed out money, but when they've got to pay it back or find some form of uh, fiscal, dare I say the word, which is tainted these days, austerity, where is the money going to come from? And I know there's this vague promise that it's all going to come from the hundreds of billions coming from US tech. Well, that, as we all know, all three of us, could well augur an enormous trade war. Well, actually, can I jump in here? Because let me bring you uh, perhaps first comment on, on your your question about the democratic issue. I think Europe would have never been created if there was any um, general uh, voter or, or an election on that. And so I guess this is how we are going to move forward as well. You'd never vote on the euro. You'd never vote whether you want to have a European Union. And I guess this is how like politicians will move the European project forward. They're not going to be any vote on it. And on the second note, how to repay it, I guess um, those countries who have uh, yeah, a better financial position like Germany, but also perhaps France, they might actually raise special taxes for that. We had a solidarity surcharge here in Germany for German reunification now for 30 years and it now only gets scrapped by the end of this year. I guess this is what he has in mind when it comes to solidarity, because clearly the plan is that not the, the weaker nations are going to repay it, but those who have more firepower, Steve.
I was just going to weigh in and talk about the optics here. I think he is right in the sense that he's talking about it looks better this time around. The Europeans are very quickly coming up with that 750 billion euro recovery fund. I mean, that's quite different to the last crisis and, and the, the way debts uh, and burdens are being shared between member nations. I mean, very different story that's playing out. I think, too, just worth noting, you know, you mentioned uh, Annette has over the years spoken to us about the debt profile and the, the balancing the budget and all the attempts by the Germans to be very disciplined, but then spelling out to us in recent weeks with the level of borrowings, too, that the Germans will engage in. I mean, what the number is, 217 billion euros that it will uh, use to finance its rescue this year. Next year, it'll borrow more than 96 billion euros as well. So short term, there will be some pain on the borrowing side for the Germans as well. So getting back to the position they're in before the crisis, that is going to take a little bit of time in what 2022 uh, at the latest, maybe 2021 at the earliest, seems to be what's flagged up. So I think the challenges, Steve, that you talk about are coming at some point, just not in the immediate future. I think just one other thing worth noting in the commentary, and perhaps markets have not focused on this enough. There's been a little bit of chat about, you know, making sure everyone has access to vaccines, but no one's really doubled down to what that means. And the finance minister was talking about that. And I think the focus so far have been, have, you know, will vaccines work? Will anybody come up with a successful vaccine? And if so, you know, when will it be rolled out? Who will, who, you know, who won't take it? Not the, how will markets position around access to the vaccine, which corridors of the world can use this, which corridors of the world have adopted it, and what does it mean economically, Steve? Yeah, I think you've raised some absolutely fantastic points about the economic questions going forward. And that's I do want to just pick you up on one point as well, if I may, and just, just back at you and back at uh, th- those comments that you uh, had with Mr. Schultz as well, is you were saying that Europeans never got a vote on the euro. Europeans never got a vote on the creation of the European Union. And you're saying, if, I correct, if I'm correct and understand you, that that is how European politicians see the way going forward. You talked about the Hamiltonian moment. What about the, the James Otis moment in 1761, where they said Tax, taxation without representation is tyranny? Seeing as you mentioned Hamiltonian, I thought we'd go over to the state side for our inspiration in this chat as well. So what you're saying is no representation in these key decisions that are affecting hundreds of millions of Europeans going forward. It will just be taken away from them, yeah? That's probably the case, yes, um, that's what I'm saying. Uh, the creation of the European Union was always um, the project of sort of elites and I guess this will never change because you see what happens if you do elections, just talking about like bringing you back to your own country, Steve, the UK. Um, I guess this is how Europeans or how politicians think about the European integration that is it, it is going to be in favour of um, everybody, of citizens, but the decisions have to be taken by politicians. Yes, okay. it's not well, well, I feel literally s- my I opinion, want, I but one, it's just how it took place. I, for one, Annette, feel stunningly uncomfortable <laughs> about politicians making decisions without a democratic mandate as well. And I want that on the record, on my epitaph, on my tombstone as well. The day we allow politicians to make de- uh, decisions without some form of democratic process to uh, mandate those decisions, then I'm, I'm giving up on capitalism, I'm giving up on democracy. Anyway, we'll come back anyway. Karen. Let's talk about the latest on the vaccine front as Johnson Johnson has temporarily halted all trials for its COVID-19 vaccine candidate after one of the participants developed an unexplained illness. The US pharma giant, which is due to report its quarterly results today, said that pauses like this are, quote, expected in large studies. 
and that the participant's illness is under an evaluation by an independent monitoring board. J&J's setback follows a similar delay in another high-profile coronavirus vaccine trial by AstraZeneca and Oxford University in September. Johnson Johnson CFO Joseph Walk will be speaking to our US colleagues later on today. That is at 12.45 CET on CNBC, so be sure to tune in for that conversation. Stick. OK, talking of different democratic systems, Russia says it expects its Sputnik, uh, Sputnik vaccine to be used widely across the country by the end of the month. This as human trials of its COVID-19 Inoculation have begun in the United Arab Emirates. The UAE is the second country to test Sputnik V, with results expected before the end of November. Speaking to CNBC, the head of the Russian Direct Investment Fund, Kirill Dmitriev, addressed concerns surrounding the vaccine. We really focused our vaccine on the safest platform out there, which is called Human Adenoviral Vector Platform that has been tried for decades. And frankly, that is really one of the big area of confidence because some of the other approaches out there are monovel approaches that haven't been really tried out. And secondly, we really believe countries need to test for themselves. And we are proud of cooperation with UE, who've always been really at the top of fighting COVID, have really had great policies to fight COVID. And the fact that they want to look, to look at the data, to look at how it works, you know, it's very impressive and very pragmatic because we are dealing with the worst epidemics ever. And I think countries need to be pragmatic and have portfolio approaches uh, to vaccines. Try different vaccines and not just make a bet on one vaccine, but have several vaccines in the portfolio. Coming up on the show, Senate Republicans and Democrats spar in the fight over the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. We'll get some analysis after the break. And for more on our exclusive interview with the German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz, check out our Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. All of a sudden, all those worries that the world has about COVID-19, about recessions, about uh, where the US is going politically, about geopolitics on either side of the Pacific, about democratic decisions that were made in the UK, which have still got ramifications to play out in the coming weeks. Yes, I'm talking about Brexit. All those concerns, well, they've just dissipated. and The US, all of a sudden, is looking in fine fettle. Should it be? I think we'll leave that question mark there. Are there worries that actually could take these markets down? Absolutely. But are there concerns that can actually just dissipate and carry on with this rally? Well, look, look at it. We've had four in a row uh, up for these US markets. Very interesting. The S&P now is only 1.5% away from its record high. The Nasdaq, uh, away by a similar margin, 1.6%. The Dow even, 2.5% away from its record high. But they've had four out of four days where they've had stunning rallies, regardless of all the political concerns, regardless of all the economic concerns, regardless of the fact that we seem quite a long way away, don't we, from a fiscal package between the administration uh, and the House Democrats as well. Maybe it's not going to happen now uh, until as late as February. Some people are talking about if there were to be some form of clean sweep 
for the Democrats as well. So a lot of those concerns have just been disappearing uh, before our very eyes as the market goes risk on as well. Uh, that said, there were some uh, asset classes moving to the downside yesterday, including WTI and Brent moving down by a mean 3%. In terms of data today, one of the usually key pieces of data, will it be ignored? May well be. Consumer prices is out today. Uh, Thursday, we have initial jobless claims. And on Friday, we have retail sales and industrial production. Let's have a very quick look at the Asian indices as well. Uh, the ones we have for you, you'll notice we've taken the Hang Sang off as well, and that's because the markets are closed because of uh, uh, adverse weather, should we say. They get some pretty heavy typhoons down there, and that is the case at the moment. But look, markets look pretty calm, just oscillating around the flat line, Karen. Now, Steve, let's move on to the latest around the U.S. elections. And President Trump has tested negative for coronavirus for consecutive days. According to White House physician Sean Connolly, who did not give specific dates for the tests, the disclosure came hours before the president's first campaign rally since his diagnosis. Thousands of mostly unmasked supporters gathered in Sanford, Florida, for the first of six planned rallies this week. As President Trump said, the lockdown had done great damage to the economy, urging people to get out despite the COVID risks. Senate lawmakers clashed in the first day of hearings on the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Republicans praised Barrett's qualifications, whilst Democrats warned she would work to overturn key legislation in health care and abortion rights. Barrett used her opening remarks to argue the high court should have a specific role in American life. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. Look, we're all learning a lot this side of the Atlantic about SCOTUS, about the proceedings as well. So let's get some uh, context on this now. First of all, with James Kahn, who is professor in residence at the University of California, San Francisco. Sir, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Look, uh, James, just, just tell us the, the ramifications in your mind of this, what seems like quite hurried proceedings uh, to get uh, Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court as well. And just talk about the legality of it, because as far as I can see, it seems distasteful to the Democrats to rush this through before the election. But there isn't actually a legal leg to stand on in, in saying she shouldn't be there. Well, um, I, I'm best qualified actually to speak to the implications of her potential appointment to the court in terms of the health care insurance implications. Um, I think your other guest is, is a lawyer, and I wouldn't want to presume any legal comments in, in that context. Yeah, James, I guess what I'm asking you is whether the ramifications from your point of view, uh, if um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett does get onto the Supreme Court, I, I wondered if you had a view on the broader issue as well, but let's specifically talk about the ACA as well. Um, if she gets onto uh, the Supreme Court as well, you have grave concerns about the ACA and perhaps Roe versus Wade as well, yep? I do, and um, the Trump administration has already partially dismantled the ACA by removing the uh, so-called individual mandate and various other ways, if the current case due to the court after the election results in the ACA being disallowed, there will be very major ramifications. The expansions of Medicaid, which is a health insurance for the poor, 
and also the private insurance exchanges will be reversed. And this will put about 20 million additional people without insurance. And in addition, the ACA protections for people with existing illnesses to assure that they can get insurance and at an affordable rate, those protections will be dropped. And so you'll see quite a few uh, tens of millions of people who will either be unable to get insurance or have to pay a lot more than they currently do. And just on that, uh, Professor, is it a foregone conclusion that if indeed we do see uh, Coney Barrett onto the court, that this is the, the, the timeline, this is the chronology you think will happen next? You think that the ACA uh, will definitely um, take another step back? And as you say, there are other ramifications perhaps for women's abortion rights as well. That will be the, the chronology in your view. Well, I, I think it's a little bit hard to predict how the court will rule on the ACA. Certainly the uh, people who are commenting on it uh, believe that this, is, by solidifying the conservative majority, greatly increases the chance of determining the ACA to be unconstitutional. In terms of uh, abortion rights and uh, maintaining Roe v. Wade, um, there is a, a very wide consensus that uh, the existing court already was moving in the direction of undoing Roe v. Wade and with an additional conservative uh, member of the court, one who has spoken openly about uh, her belief that any abortion is immoral, that uh, that would almost certainly within a few years lead to the opportunity and and perhaps the reality of declaring Roe v. Wade an incorrect decision and therefore opening it up for states to prohibit abortion. Do you think her Catholic faith is an issue? I noticed that the Democrats were very, very careful not to bring up her Catholicism as well. I mean, surely the right to practice and to believe in a, a certain religion is enshrined in the US as well. Uh, do you believe her Catholicism is a problem then? You know, I, uh, I would say that uh, her opinion on abortion is consistent with uh, Catholic doctrine, but I don't know, you know, the details of why she thinks the way she does. Um, and uh, I, I like to uh, uh, aim for the American standard of keeping religion out of politics. It's not always easy to achieve, but that's our, our hope. Okay, so we're just going to move on, but stay there, sir, because we're going to bring in our other panelists now, who is uh, Dr. Bertrand Ross, who is uh, Chancellor's Professor at Berkeley Law as well. Good morning to you, Dr. Ross. I'm glad we could get the, uh, the line-up. In fact, good evening to you where you are, of course. Um, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Look, I, I hear why the Democrats feel this is being rushed, but my original question to our other guests was, is there a legal leg to stand on uh, for the Democrats to say, actually, this should not be going ahead? This confirmation hearing should not be going ahead as well? Because as far as I can see, uh, the Republicans are doing something which is just basically very legal. Yeah, there's no legal rule, statute, or constitutional standard that re that would limit or prohibit this type of proceeding that's being put forth with respect to the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. 
what the Democrats' main argument is based on precedent in terms of what the Republicans said and did with respect to the nomination and confirmation hearings of Judge Merrick Garland. And the arguments that the Republicans put forth um, against that confirmation, the Democrats said should be precedent for this particular confirmation. Um, but the Republicans have um, reversed course. Um, some They've given reasons, whether they're valid or not, are, are, is, 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 uh, is questionable. But there's no rule or statute or Senate rule, statute or constitutional limitation on what the Republicans are doing with respect to these confirmation hearings. Uh, Dr. Ross, can I just weigh in and ask you about this uh, conservative-leaning bench then a court with a, a 6-3 conservative majority that, you know, that transpires? What are the ramifications? Because just because someone is conservative doesn't necessarily mean they will rule a certain way. We've been talking, for instance, around SCOTUS and, and just the interpretation of the law, whether it's a working document, a real-life document, or treated differently. So how do we interpret uh, the, the ramifications of the way the bench would be set up? Yeah, the, the ramifications, we do have a, a, a working, evolving document. Um, it's open-ended. It's quite vague and ambiguous in many of its terms um, when we're talking about the Constitution. And it gives the court and judges quite a bit of discretion in terms of how that document is to be interpreted. In the United States, there's quite deep divisions, um, all, often along ideological lines, about how the document should be interpreted to protect um, or to treat things like the right to privacy, which was part of the discussion today, um, the right to um, what equal protection means in terms of protecting against um, discrimination on the basis of, of a variety of characteristics, um, and um, what separation of powers means, how much executive power, um, um, how much power should the executive have, how, how many limitations can Congress place on those powers, and what the relationship between the states and the federal government are. These are sort of deep and abiding divisions that exist within our um, within our polity and in legal circles on these particular issues. And there is often a conservative position on these issues and a liberal position on these issues. And given that the court will now be 6-3 and a firmly conservative court, it means the conservative vision on these issues will likely prevail. Now, does this mean whole widespread reversals of past cases? Probably not. But I do think that you'll see a subtle but, but distinct shift um, in a conservative direction with respect to these fundamental issues under our Constitution. Dr. Ross, I've gone right over, but I, I can't leave it here. I was looking at your various endgame scenarios, and I cannot believe your alternative three. I mean, that seems so extreme. So grant statehood to Puerto Rico and D.C. Uh, and so basically you'd have four extra potential, and I say potential, Democrat seats as well. Can you honestly see a chronology that takes us down this route? I actually can. And there's been a lot of momentum with respect to D.C. statehood for a while and some momentum, especially also with respect to Puerto Rican statehood. I think it's it's an approach that has um, a legitimate basis for it, that people living in a part of the country should have representation in their federal government. And I could see it as a move that if the Democrats gain control of the three branches of government, that could be potentially made. Um, it doesn't require a constitutional amendment. It can be granted by statute. So I see this as a as a possibility, especially when it's highlighted the extreme um, misrepresentation or, or, or uh, disproportionate representation of, of rural communities in the Senate, that it's a way to balance, in a sense, the Senate in terms of representation by granting statehood to these two um, entities. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.